the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, great to be together. Busy, busy time. You would think the dog days of summer, the hot summer days, would make things slow down a little bit. Not so much, not so much. Uh, most, of the con- uh, most of the bureaucrats in Washington in the swamp where I live uh, have fled, and the Congress is out of session, so that's good. But there was a court hearing yesterday in one of the January 6th defendants' cases, which I spent six hours on Monday in a courtroom listening to a sentencing um, a sentencing hearing. So it's interesting. I'll fill you in more on that tomorrow. Uh, but for, I want to tell you today, I'm going to be quick on the uh, wink. What you need to know is during a wink, I'm going to tell you something. This is a, a funny wink, a funny wink. Read more, read more. I've got two people coming up and I, uh, I've got two guests and uh, I am going to save my time to talk with them because I know one of them is in Europe. He teaches in Warsaw, uh, Dr. Stephen Baskerville. We're going to talk to him about some essays he wrote, and he's written a book on politics worth reading. And also, I want to get I've, I've talked to this guy off the air. I'm going to talk to Julian Raven, an immigrant to America, an artist. He's got a story of the American dream and American perseverance and the bureaucracies stomping on uh, we the people. And we'll talk with him in a moment. So I'm going to save my time. That's what you need to know is read more, read more. We will take a break. We'll be right back. Julian Raven coming up next. And then Dr. Stephen Baskerville back in a moment. Ed Martin here on the pro America report. Talk to you in a minute. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, my listeners have heard me say over and over, I love reading books, and I love that uh, so many folks will send me a book, either publicists or publishers or authors even. And uh, I got this book, uh, uh, Julian Raven's book. It's called Odious and Cerberus. Tell me how to pronounce it, Julian. Cerberus. Odious and Cerberus. Cerberus. There you go. What a great uh, title. An American Immigrant's Odyssey and his free speech legal war against Smithsonian corruption. So, first of all, welcome Julian Raven to the program. How are you today? Very good, and thank you for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. And so before we get into the uh, Smithsonian, the fight with the Smithsonian, it's a wonderful book. It's kind of a memoir. I mean, it, it covers your, your battle there and your, uh, your, uh, the conversation, but it's um, uh, the details of what happened. But um, it's really a memoir. And I'm interested in the beginnings. Uh, when, I, when I was reading about your first uh, days in uh, America, uh, you came to America, then you actually had to leave for a period and came back, got married and, and all this and in there, I picked up, you were talking about an, Amer- you know, an immigrants and your, your reaction to immigration. You know, it's such a hot button issue that so many people, if you say you're against immigration or you're for less immigration or against illegal immigration, people call you names. Well, you lived it. You're, you're, you're an immigrant and now you're an American. Or, and, and talk to me about that part of it. Talk to me about how, because in the book, you sort of refer to, hey, I had to do it by the rules and I did it by the rules. 
Yes, and that was a uh, now in retrospect, it's a wonderful part of the story. At yeah. the time, it, it was very <laughs> difficult. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, as I say, as I, I was coming to the United States really to bypass America, to go to South America, having been born in London but raised in Spain, I was fluent in Spanish. And I had a, a calling. I wanted to go and preach the gospel in Latin America, fluent in Spanish. And I just was like, I'm just going to stay in the United States and California, make a few dollars and go south and uh, buy a donkey and cart, fill it with New Testaments. And I was going to go preach the gospel, get lost in South America. But but God had other plans. And I, I you know, what's interesting, I find out, is that growing up in Spain as a as an English person, I, I was exposed to a lot of the anti-American like propaganda. There's a lot of it. I mean, you could you walking down a street and big graffiti on the wall would be "Fuera Yankees," you know, "Get out Yankees," and you know yeah. we had the the military bases there. So, in one side of me was being sort of affected by this negative perception of the United States, but then very interestingly is all the people that I met in Spain from when I was very young, neighbors. American families, people at school when I was in like high school, uh, English high school in southern Spain, we'd have American students come over. There were children of different individuals doing this. And every American that I met had such an impact on my life. They were always, they were people that were big hearted. They were kind. They were generous. They were always willing to share and share what they, I mean, it was, it was, it impacted me throughout my life. And I can remember all the way back to, probably when I was six years old, even having this little Captain America doll over there. And I actually found a photograph recently and saw myself in it. And I'm like, there it is. That's the little thing. And that's where my love of America started. But right. it was interesting because coming to America, I had I had prejudices based upon sort of the prop, anti-American propaganda that I was being spoon-fed in Europe. And as I came to America, and as I stayed here, and I came to visit a, a, an American friend who I met in Spain, who was living in California, who a wonderful man, someone who had helped me so tremendously and just had such an impact on my life. My art teacher's school, had American from California, impacted my life. Was so, he went out of his way to help me. And to, I mean, everybody I met. So I had this wonderful impression of American people, but this strange you know, the propaganda affected. But anyway, coming to the States, I fell in love with America and the people and I didn't want to leave. And so after being here three months as a visitor, I then ran out of status and tried to you know arrange my status to stay in the United States. And I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go to South America anymore. I didn't want to go back to Spain. And I wanted to try to correct my out of status. You know, I became an, an illegal alien of sorts not having status. But after two years of that, and I was in, now I was in New York and I was part-time studying at a seminary. I was constantly right. com convicted and just like, you know, people would say to me, and I, I talk about it in my book, they'd say, you, you can't, you can't be in the country without your, your right. illegal status. And, right, right, right. and I, I had my ways of justifying it and, say, and saying that, you know, I, but, but I didn't. But anyway, it all came to a head when I realized I was like an, a guest in a house who had outstayed my welcome and it was not just illegal, it was just unethical. And I was, I was taking advantage of the kindness of America that had been extended to me. And it was against my nature to do that. It's not who, it's not how I was brought up, brought up. Mm -hmm. but it, it just, you so wanted to stay. And then I fell in love and, oh, should I would get married to try and fix this? And it was like, no, you know, the only way to make this right is to leave 
And that's where that part of the story where I go to the INS building and hand yeah. myself in. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. It's, I, it's, I, but, 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 my, and we're talking with Julian Raven, and I want to make sure, uh, because, uh, time will go fast. If you go to julianraven.com, you'll see his, uh, artwork and his history and lots of more about him. So, uh, julianraven.com. But, um, but, but before we go off that, you, you, when you come to the argument today, when people say, oh my gosh, you know, so and so is harsh on illegal immigration. I mean, you, I think you've fall into that camp of people who played by the rules and would say, make the rules and enforce them. If you want to make the rules that say, let more people in, then do it, but don't make the rules and don't enforce them. I mean, and I think it's more powerful coming from you because you went through it and sort of suffered the rules. It's, it's just, it seems it's insanity to me because you, you, you're jeopardizing so much, but you're also contradicting so much of what we stand for as a people who should abide by the rule of law. And there's nothing wrong with, with having a fence or a, a boundary around your property at a home and saying, you know, you, no one comes in unless you're invited in and here's the front door and come in through the door, please. And you're a guest or, you know, you, it's just, it's, it's just ethical. It's the right thing to do. And then it just blows my mind. Yeah. that there can be such a blind eye turned to this yeah. issue. And then the consequences of it are so devastating, as I share in my book, one yeah. story that just ripped my heart apart. And, you know, Ed, it's, it's very, it's very sad. I don't, I don't understand it. I'm like, why don't you just enforce the law? Well, what's, yeah. what's wrong with it? It's a good law. It's, it's America's a good country. I, I don't get it. I All do. right. So, so, and now we're talking with Julian Raven and his, his, uh, his, we're talking about his book, which I'll put up on social media, but he's an artist. If you go to his website, you'll see his artwork, a successful art, trained as an artist, successful artist. So you come along, Julian, you've got lots of artwork, uh, of course, of your life. And since then too, um, of course, um, but you decide to paint a portrait of Trump, of Donald, President Trump, not just Trump, but President Trump. And now you say to yourself, oh, wait a second, I'm an American. I've got a portrait. I'm an artist. I'm not just a, you know, I'm not just coming about this, decided one day to paint an, a portrait. I'm a, I'm, you know, fair, a, a legitimate artist, meaning you, you know, you're a professional artist. And, and so you paint this portrait and now you say, I, I want to hang it in the, in the Smithsonian with, um, with the other, uh, artwork. Now I, I used to play the piano when I was a kid and I, I wanted to play in Carnegie Hall, but I couldn't make them let me play in Carnegie Hall. But I wasn't a pro, I'd say. But get me through the logic and the listeners of what you were doing here and how it was important and what it uncovers about the Smithsonian. Well, the the, the story became a, another wonderful chapter in my, you know, as I call it, odyssey in, in becoming an American. And I, at that time, it was 2015. I, my citizenship was still in process. I, my, I had not yet become a citizen. I was a resident by then. I was married with children and business and, and my art. But then, you know, having become somebody who had fallen in love with this country, I want to participate in the dialogue and, and help this country throw my little hat in and say, you know, what can I do? And as an artist, how can you contribute? So that led me to this moment where in 2015, the summer of, I, I had a tremendous experience to then paint this, you know, inspiring experience to paint this portrait of then candidate Donald Trump. And most people thought it was crazy. And at the time, you know, everyone that I knew is like, we're not voting with the Fiorina or right. with, you know, all these, uh, you right. know, Ben Carson and Cruz. But so I was like, well, look, I, I'm, I, I think this guy's going to win. I believe it. I absolutely do. Th- and that I cover the details, obviously, in the book there exactly. But 
after having this incredible and political journey, traveling the country, going to the Iowa caucuses, going out to California, showing it out there in Politicon, which was the zenith of the political art world with all the top political artists in the country. It was, shown, it was, it was a tremendous experience. It right. was shown alongside the Obama Hope poster, which was the iconic image from the yeah. Obama yeah. presidency. Right. And, you know, but it was, it was organized by the, the gentleman who, in, who was the patron behind that poster, Yossi Sajan, hired uh, Shepard Ferry, who was a guy doing graffiti on the walls of, of, of in, in Los Angeles, and he hired him to do this Obama painting. Or, uh, it was actually a, a posterized or photoshopped image from the, from the internet. So I then, you know, was like, well, I can paint a painting, and, and 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 maybe you know it could be good for me, maybe for my art, but more importantly, maybe it can really help this man who I saw as somebody who had this tremendous courageous attitudes towards changing the, 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 the status quo. And so I paint that painting, I campaign. And after Trump wins and everyone's like sort of now congratulating me, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this massive seven by 15 foot painting? And I had met people across the United States who had said to me, you this, this is great. This should be in the Smithsonian, you know, in, 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 in Iowa and California, everywhere I went, they should, one person would somehow connect it. And I didn't know what that meant. So I did the research in, in right after Trump had won. And there again, I was like, wow, look, the National Portrait Gallery, they, they shoot, they shoot the uh, Obama portrait for, for an Obama's inauguration, 2009, 2013. I said, bingo, they show presidential political portraits for, as a tribute to the incoming new president. And right. even when Obama was president. And, um, I then go through this whole application process. And, you know, your question about, you know, how do you approach the Smithsonian? After the research, it's like this is a public uh, museum trust. Yeah. It belongs to us. Um, you know, it was Tony Podesta who donated his Obama copy of the of the Obama portrait for he said for art and for Democrats, right for the inauguration. So he was like, "There it is. Put it on show." And and um, so I do the same thing, but I end up in an eleven minute argument on the phone because the director herself, Kim Sayet, who's an Australian woman, not even an American citizen. This is how bizarre it is calls me up uh, with her sort of Trump derangement syndrome. And um, we have this argument because she's like denying every, you know, portraiture standard of acceptance into the museum. She's refusing that and right. making up her own. Oh, it's this and it's that. Then she says, oh, it's it's too political. And I said to her, but you, you showed the Obama portrait. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and she's like, oh, and it was just every type of arbitrary objection that she could make up. And by the end of it, I had rebutted every, every objection she made and she was really frustrated. And in her high pitched Australian action, she's like, I'm the director of the national portrait gallery. <laughs> your, your application will go no further. And then she says, uh, uh, you can appeal it all you want. And then click hands up the phone. It was an, it was a, a full on argument. And right, so right, right. after this being stunned for those few days, I then said, I am going to appeal. And it led me on a journey then of research who yeah. to appeal to. And that led me on to this whole quest. So, you know, the, as far as the approach to the museum, it is totally within the rights of the beneficiaries of the trust, which is we the people, to participate. Now, they have a process. They should. Yep. Yep. And they have standards, which they should abide by. I was afforded nothing. No process. No standards of consideration. No consider nothing. It was just a, a woman who was that. This is right after the election. Who probably thought I'm going to have. I'm going to blast my rage at this some artist from Elmira, New York. 
And um, it, when she defied me to appeal it all I wanted, I did. And I right. appealed it all the way <laughs> to the Supreme Court. So uh, before we run out of time, let me let me say um, Julian Raven again, julianraven.com. You can see him there and I'll put up on social media his book, which is odious and uh, Cerberus. What's the Cerberus. title mean? What's the, what's the title mean? Tell her, tell her. Well, it is, it is a riddle, but it's, it's a riddle that's answered in the book. Odious and Cerberus are two terms that were given to me. Um, and I give away a little bit of the, of the, of the, of the story that it's actually part of the ruling of a federal judge. And the challenge to the reader is to find out who is odious and who right. is Cerberus, this three-headed beast. And yeah. basically the, this, the, the, the mystery of the journey for me is that this free speech lawsuit morphed into this discovery of this entity status confusion at the Smithsonian Institution. Senator Grassley, uh, even Jason Chaffetz, you had uh, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes. They have been trying for years to cause uh, reform at the Smithsonian Institution because of all of these problems in the institution. They've not accomplished it right yet. And it, at its roots, the problem that I discovered is this question of exactly what is the institution. And my journey right now with the book, my next chapter, which I am on, is to compel an amendment to the Smithsonian Act of 1846 that will, because this is what the Supreme Court refused to do. You know, they refused to say what the law is, which is their mandate under Madison versus Marbury, which is say what the law is, you know, judicial review. And they refused it. And so Congress now has to say this is what the Smithsonian is. These are the laws it abides by. This is what uh, who owns it. The property is owned by the people. It's not owned by the federal government. It's a private institution. All of this, the judge in my case said, oh, no, it's the government. It's the government through and through. And yet I have all the documentation to show Supreme Court justices in the past who are the chancellor of the Smithsonian, whether it was uh, Warren Berger or quoting Howard Taft saying, no, the Smithsonian Institution is not and has never been considered a government bureau. They said it is a private institution under the guardianship of the government. So we have those documented declarations on one side. And in my case, the bizarre thing with the federal courts will say, it's absolutely the government. It's completely the government. And you're like, this is legal schizophrenia. Yeah. And Congress must fix this, Ed. Uh, uh, Julian Raven, um, I guess that's the interesting takeaway broadly. I mean, besides the fact that your your artwork could have and should have been appreciated at that moment and all, and that there's a double standard and hypocrisy and all, the real takeaway to me, and you're pointing to it, is how did we get in this country to grow so many institutions and then let them it's be one thing if it was, as you point out, was a government institution. OK, then we're the we're the we're the um, we're the beneficiaries or we're we're the ones that been. we should be able to claim on it and have a process and all. But they get outside of accountability. And so you now have and it's Smithsonian's one example. There's a, there's and and frankly, the most likely thing that happens in my opinion although i can't say it's based on all the facts is they become little little protected sinecures for certain sets of people right and they become mm, absolutely the place, the place where they entertain each other and if you're podesta you ha i bet podesta got a really cool private tour and has his name <laughs> on something and all that and if you're julian raven you, you know you get put on a watch list <laughs> <laughs> I think I, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. And then and then this is the thing. Then you say, well, yeah. And, and to the tune of seven hundred million dollars a year. Yeah. At the taxpayers expense. And yeah. we sit there and we say, like with the border, we sit there and we say, 
Oh, oh, how bad, how terrible. No, it's not how terrible. I, I swore an oath when I became a citizen. I raised my hand. I pledged allegiance. I denied all allegiance to foreign kings and queens and England and Spain. I had to renounce it all and then pledge my allegiance to defend the laws of this country and the Constitution. And then, you know, I can't sit by and watch this happen. And then when they come along and they slap you in the face like this, I'm not going to sit by. I'm going to, th- that's what I love about America is that the nobody guy like me from this, this a little nobody person can stand up and redress our government. And, and, and it's such a marvelous thing that is, it just, it, it makes me so excited to be American because I guess I can do this and I did it and I took it as far as I could in that road. Now I'm taking it as far as I can in the other road and I'm not going to stop by the grace of God, until I accomplish my objective, which is to force Congress to do its job. Yeah. All right. JulianRaven.com is the website. Julian Raven is the author. His book is Odious and Cerberus, uh, An American Immigrant's Odyssey and His Free Speech Legal War Against Smithsonian Corruption. It's a... um, it's a good memoir. It's a really good memoir, entertaining and American sort of story. And it's a very uh, compelling argument about how these extra sort of constitutional or extra governmental institutions have been created. And a really uh, fascinating. You'll, you'll recognize uh, the sort of players, Smithsonian and all that, which is helpful. Sometimes there's all these other organizations. You might even know their names. They're getting funded by us. So, Julian Raven, thank you. We'll have you on again. Very interesting. Keep us informed and uh, God bless your work. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, that's great. It's great. Interesting. Okay, we'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. Don't forget, I'll put all this up over at ProAmericaReport.com. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. It's been quite a while since I've had our next guest, Dr. Stephen Baskerville, on the program. A little embarrassed to admit, and um, we'll we'll remedy that, uh, I think, because you're going to like this topic. And Dr. Stephen Baskerville, who currently is a professor, a professor and the uh, chair of the Department of Political Studies at the Collegium Intermarium University in Warsaw, Poland, which is very, very cool. And we could probably talk about that for a long time. He is also uh, has been an author of a number of books on politics and, and uh, in particular, sexual politics, as it's called, uh, The Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex and Ruling the World, How to Survive as a Man in the Age of Misandry and to Do So with Grace, which was published by Sophia University, excuse me, Sophia Institute Press. We, I think might have had you on uh, for that book. So uh, welcome back, Dr. Baskerville. How are you? Thank you. It's good to be here. So first, Our exchange on email was important to me. You mentioned that while there were lots of good things going on in the Trump term, the first term, that you could, he couldn't accomplish a lot of things and that a lot of things didn't get done for lots of reasons. Lots of reasons. I had a UN observer on and he said, um, hey, look, in the first three and a half years, the Trump administration started to turn the battleship around. But by the time he was out of office, you know, Biden and all turned it right back. Uh, talk to me, Dr. Baskerville, about social policy and and without sort of being too hard, uh, what the missed opportunities were in a way. Well, social policy was really the number one priority among uh, conservative Republicans in the years up till about the 1990s. Uh, And it's kind of dropped off the radar screen uh, for Republicans. And and, uh, as you say, Trump didn't really have time to pick it up. 
But I think it's absolutely fundamental. There's a reason that major intellectuals and scholars and policymakers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up to the 90s uh, identified this, realized the dangers of the great society programs, the welfare state, some of the programs that preceded that, and how radical they'd become, and how they were breeding other forms of radicalism. And so... You know, there was a great push for this. There were warnings by uh, scholars like Pat Moynihan and uh, Irving mm. Lewis Horowitz about yeah. the, how this the, the welfare system was not just expensive and bloated and wasteful, but destroying families, uh, a breeding ground for crime and for substance abuse and for uh, truancy and school failure and uh, for more uh, unwed pregnancies in the next generation, which were just, you know, uh, sending, uh, passing the problem down through through the years. So, um, but unfortunately, Clinton came through with his perfunctory welfare reform in 96. Yeah. And I think that kind of fooled people. It, it allowed, gave people the excuse to ignore this. And then Obama, uh, as you say, reversed everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some ways, actually, the Clinton uh, program was actually made the, in the long run, made the problem worse. It didn't really solve the welfare problem. It, it, it created some mechanisms which uh, were equally or more destructive for the future. So it's really been fallen off. And I think we see the fruits of it. I've written a series of articles in Chronicles magazine and elsewhere showing that, you know, the, the revolts in 2020 and since then, the last two years of, you know, black youths and, and middle class white youths, uh, you know, these kids grow up as products of the welfare system or products of divorce, which is the same thing in fatherless homes, fatherless communities. They're they're angry. They're resentful. They're full of rage. Uh, they're full of rage for the wrong reasons, but there's also some justifiable rage. In many ways, they've been manipulated by the left. Um, they've been manipulated in some ways, or they've been ignored by the right, by conservatives who, who come up with excuses and uh, you know anger about this, the rage that they're expressing. But their rage is is not the, the legitimate rage is not because of, of racism and you know all of this kind of thing that we we hear in their propaganda. The, the rage the rage that I think is has a legitimate side is. The way they've been, you know, used, as I say, by the welfare system, by the divorce system, by the, the left and the and very comfortable people, um, you know, they've been manipulated as pawns. And uh, so they're, they're lashing out. They're angry. And I think in some ways, you know, the ascendancy of the left in the last two years shows how fatherless youths and youths from these communities are, are becoming more organized, uh, as it were. They're not only responsible for crime and, and violence and, uh, you know, even yeah. things like school shootings, but also they're becoming more and more organized they're, they're re- through things like Black Lives Matter and, you know, the campus cancel culture and these things. So they're, you know, the angry youth are becoming sophisticated. Uh, which again, uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Stephen Baskerville. He he referenced uh, a, a number of um, of essays he's written over in Chronicles. If you go to chroniclesmagazine.org, chroniclesmagazine.org, you can see those, and uh, they, there's great stuff there. It's a great history. Uh, Chronicles is uh, a magazine of American culture. Is sort of its title for a long time. Published by the Charlemagne Institute. Um, extraordinarily valuable. So uh, I want to switch gears on that uh, topic, uh, only to say. You were reading 
conversations or you were reading descriptions of conversations that uh, a second Trump term, what would it look like and all? And and you and I had this exchange where you said, look, if one of the things you're going to do is try to drain the civil service swamp, and there has been coverage in the last month of uh, Donald Trump saying, you know, one of the things I had hoped to do was uh, to change some of the rules so that we could k- get some of the swamp drainies, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of bureaucrats who are settled in. You uh, make a point uh, persuasive to me that the greatest reduction in the in the swamp and the size and scope and the, and then therefore the power of it in these bureaucracies is social welfare bureaucracies. So, you know, walk me through uh, what's the size and scope of that. How would you see it shifting? I mean, um, I think uh, Trump, if he does have a second term, if he runs, is going to I think is going to play, you know, sort of for keeps. And this may be a piece of that puzzle. So walk me through your point here. Yeah, well, if there's there's no place in the in the federal government where there's more superfluous bureaucrats and uh, and in the state governments too, uh, than in the welfare system, and uh, you know as I say they're not only superfluous but they're they're causing positive damage. They're raising right. our children to be right. to be rebels in many ways. Right. So um, I think some of the re- Republican approaches to this have been um, well perfunctory or, or superficial. But I think what we could do first of all is go back to the well, let's say the, the old welfare reforms of the seventies and eighties would not work anymore. There has to be more to it. For example, tax incentives to encourage marriage uh, are not sufficient, but they are a start. I think we could start with that. Uh, I think welfare benefits have right. to be limited over time. They have to right. be you know, something that is very uh, temporary. Um, I think we have to reform the, uh, also we have to look seriously at reform of the marriage and divorce laws, especially because in many ways, the divorce laws inherited the welfare system. It's strange to, to think about that. And it's, it's, but what happened essentially is the welfare system was created for low income people, of course, and it destroyed the family among you know, the minority families, the black family decades ago. But now through the divorce system, that same destruction of the family has spread to the middle class and to the, you know, the mainstream of society. So divorce took the welfare system and made it took the underclass and made it middle class. It, it, you know, it, it made the middle class as destructive and as dysfunctional as, as the, the underclass had been before. So we seriously need to look at those uh, divorce, the, the divorce laws and the whole oxymoron of no fault justice. Uh, we're, again, we're talking with Dr. S- uh, Stephen Baskerville um, in a in a. Um, but is the bureau is there a way to talk about the bureaucracies on the social welfare side? I mean, you know, um, it, it, it went from, OK, we have to hire someone to administer Social Security to we have to have a diversity coordinator for this or you have to have a actuary on that. And you have to have and it went from sort of this massive um, the growth in the bureaucracy, both often was liberal um, we'll manage more of your life. You know, uh, we, we, you and I, I think have talked about it. I've certainly talked about it on the show that, uh, you talk about family courts in America, a family court at the state level ends up with a family court and social workers and case managers and all these bureaucrats who are designed and, and therefore seek to manage the life of families effectively and and mismanage the relationships and all. I mean, we could write, there have been, you know, dozens and thousands of books and essays written on this subject. Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly wrote a book called Who Killed the American Family? And these bureaucracies stifle at the federal level. Where's the where's the sort of sweet spot? Because you can't win an election if you say I'm going to cut Social Security, in my opinion. I mean, you may still go in and do it. You just can't. You know, Trump was smart enough to know you can't say that. But you you can probably win an election by saying the Social Security agency has 
X number of employees doing 74 different things, we're going to cut that back. And you may start to get to the point of you're changing the, the dynamic. I, where's the sweet spot in the federal uh, bureaucracy? Well, I think the, the positive a couple of things, first yeah. of all, is, is, is the way that this is not the whole growth of the, of the welfare bureaucracy is not driven by poverty. It's driven by functionaries. It's driven by the people that run it. And they're creating poverty. They're cre- the way they're creating poverty, they're like all good you know, bureaucrats, they're creating the problem they're supposed to be solving because that's, that's their self-interest. And the way they're creating it is the breakdown is, is to destroy families. Uh, and that's what is to prey upon families in many ways. This was the problem of the welfare reforms of the 70s and 80s, why they didn't work. They were geared toward you know, going from, from welfare to work, you know, the idea of get, get them off the welfare rolls and put them to work. Well, that ignores the whole problem of the family. You, you can't have, I mean, mothers can't, mothers can't be, you can't take single mothers and put them to work all the time. You have to, they have to be fathers there too. Right, right. They have to be supporting those families. So the, you have to look at this holistically. And also, the, you know, it, it includes the problems of the, uh, of the family. And I think by ignoring this, we've also brought along, prob- we've, we've created problems like, you know, same-sex marriage and that sort of thing. I think a, a Trump presidency that took the high ground on marriage and showed the positive aspects of marriage Marriage is an alternative to welfare. Marriage is a, as a, a, you know, as a system of, of welfare, of, of general economic and social prosperity would pull the rug out from under same sex marriage. It wouldn't be an issue anymore. There'd be no need for it. It would become trivial. Um, so the, the way to get around problems of same sex marriage is not to wiggle out of them and not to run away from them, but to rise above them and look at the, you know, the positive areas of marriage that it can solve so many of our of our social uh, pathologies, so our social ills, um, by encouraging, uh, and it, it can make our society more prosperous by getting people off the welfare rolls and into, into married two-parent families. Uh, Dr. Stephen Baskerville, I, 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 I've been thinking about this since I, I remember you telling me you were, you were going over to teach in Warsaw, and, and I've seen your work and the extraordinary uh, value of it. I'm, 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 but I, but I want to ask you this part of it. Is the, is the beacon of... Um, is the light of the truth on this, of policy truth, having your nation actually incentivize sort of pro-family, pro-marriage uh, policies, um, conduct, incentivize the conduct, looks like that's happening in Hungary and Poland and a few other places. Is, is that the light we should be following? And can you envision at this late hour in America swinging back? I mean, look, the late Phyllis Schlafly used to say, don't tell me you're going to get away, get rid of the marriage penalty and say that you're impartial. You're making a decision, right? If you make a decision not to incentivize marriage, you're making a decision in the tax code, right? And so you're either comfortable with that or not. And the libertarians that have often taken over the Republican Party say, oh, oh, let's let's be uh, let's somehow be, uh, you know, impartial. Well, impartial is a choice. Choice in, in depending on what culture you're in. So is the future uh, Poland and uh, and Hungary, and can it translate to America? Oh, I think it can. Yes, I mean the, uh, I'm spoiled in this, you know, living in this culture. I'm in Romania where it's very similar. You know, people are very committed to to the, their faith, their Christian faith, and and to the, the values of the family, and that's that's important. And you know, in some of the ways, we have uh, retained that in America and in different. You know, Protestant, uh, Catholic form, but in some ways we've also lost it. I don't think we can. I don't think we can focus entirely on culture. I think we have to remember that there are very important policy matters to be implemented. We can't just fall back and use culture as an excuse for doing nothing, for right. paralysis. 
but what you're saying, of course, is true. You you know you, you do have to you do have to, to do this. But but it's also true that in many ways a push for for concrete policy changes can also rejuvenate the culture. It can serve as a form of education. Pat Moynihan used to say this, uh, and others uh, that that you know that, that pushing for for these things and and bringing people back to the the concrete changes that need to be made can serve as a form of public education and can rejuvenate the culture. So we need a dialogue in this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We need to return to the dialogues we were having, but we need to to transcend what we were doing back in the the 70s because it it didn't work. Uh, Dr. Stephen Baskerville, one last question. Um, You've been a teacher for decades. You've been an educator for decades. You've been a writer for decades. And so you've been a communicator saying, hey, let me um, show you what I understand and persuade you on this. Um, and we're, but we're living in a time and my listeners get tired of me referring to it. I refer to the narrative machine, which is big tech, big media, and big government, all three working together to define the narrative, to force the narrative on the people and anything outside of that narrative, uh, you may or may not be able to cut through. And so it, while it may have been true that in the 1980s, you had to work hard to find a publisher for some of the more conservative, thoughtful, uh, uh, books, it's even more true now that if you're speaking certain truths, you're going to be marginalized profoundly. And frankly, um, almost without knowing it, you're silenced. Do you feel sort of <laughs> that darkness descending? Yes, I do. And, and clearly, I, I think, I think the, the established media, the established academia, in many ways, the established churches are uh, are bankrupt, are morally bankrupt, and and I think there's no alternative in many ways to but to create new ones, new ones, not to retreat, not to go back to a you know a monastery, but to to create new new media, new new academies, new universities, and but I think this is good. I don't think this is a bad thing. I think if there's a silver lining in what's happened over the last two years, it is to reawaken uh, a sleeping citizenry, to re- remind us all of the importance of self reliance. Of manliness, uh, of the values that you know that, that you know the first Americans uh, uh, emphasized and practiced uh, when they were building this country. We can't just rely on you know on what we have. We have to sometimes we do have to you know start again from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I think if you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. All right, Dr. Stephen Baskerville, thank you. Thanks for those essays. Thanks for uh, <clears throat> excuse me focusing uh, my thought on this and for a great discussion. We will talk again soon. It's been too long. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Have a good All day. right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll come back. I will put up on social media. I'll go find that interview I did with him about his book, too. Uh, I'll put that up again. Uh, interesting, fascinating book. I have it right on my shelf across the way. I can see it's got a distinct cover, so I can see it from here. Uh, we will take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America F- Report. I'll be right back. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Last year, the pilots' unions warned that the vaccine mandates against them would result in travel chaos for many Americans. And indeed it has. In the busiest weeks of the summer travel season, thousands of flights have been significantly delayed or even canceled. Thanks to public tracking by the website FlightAware, neither airlines nor the government can hide this travesty anymore. Yet airline executives have failed to stand up against the Biden administration's demand for universal vaccination, perhaps because the executives are heavily dependent on the direct subsidies from the federal government that total more than $50 billion last year because of the pandemic. 
With their credibility at stake, the public health authorities continue to insist on mandatory vaccination for the military, for federal workers, for some school children, and for pilots and other airline employees. These mandates persist despite how fully vaccinated, boosted, and masked up high-profile individuals like Dr. Anthony Fauci and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau have still caught the virus. Clearly, this has nothing to do with the public health and everything to do with control. Meanwhile, the Biden administration pushes harder to impose COVID vaccination on everyone. FDA vaccine advisors voted 21 to 0 for children younger than five years of age to receive the COVID vaccine. This affects infants as young as six months with unknown long-term consequences. A vaccine cannot be licensed until its safety and effectiveness is proven by six months of data, but only two months are required under an emergency use authorization. As with adults and teenagers, the FDA exploits this same loophole to urge COVID vaccination of infants despite how there is no genuine emergency for young children to receive this controversial vaccine. From flight cancellations to fundamental right cancellations, government overreach is a cancer on society today. When the free choice of individuals is paired with the free market, the American engine of productivity can rocket towards progress unhindered. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I ran out of time. I told you guys I knew those were going to be great interviews, so I'm out of time. Thank you to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, Joanna Spilger, our associate producer, and thank you for listening to the program. Be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Thanks for listening. America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.